Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. This episode is funded by listeners like you. To support our work and gain access to exclusive content, visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists. Hi, I'm Dr. Cindy Nebel, a professor at Washburn University, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath. Dr. Horvath is a neuroscientist and educator affiliated with the University of Melbourne. He's also the author of the new book, Stop Talking, Start Influencing, 12 Insights from Brain Science to Make Your Message Stick. So we will talk a little bit more about that book later in the podcast, but today um, Jared and I wanted to talk about an issue that comes up fairly often when we're talking to educators. So many times we've gotten posed with this question, but I don't want my students to just memorize facts. I want them to be able to use this information. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about this bigger issue of transfer. So Jared, I understand that you sort of call this issue of depth of understanding a learning trajectory. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's essentially, it's how do we take new information in? How do we embody it? And then how do we use it? And believe it or not, human beings all go along the very same path. I don't care how old you are, how young you are, except for maybe really young kids, say under the age of five. We all follow the same general trajectory when it comes to taking in, embodying, and using new information. So if if our goal here is to use this information, yeah. um, you know, we get back to this sort of issue that comes up time and time again of memorizing things. So is there any point in doing that? Like, is it worthwhile to memorize the names of famous people or battles or key terms and definitions? <laughs> is there any use for that? Or should we just be talking about how to use information? Oh, my goodness. I, I wish it were easy enough that we could just say, no, don't worry about it. Now that we got Google and we have access to information, we can just do whatever we want to. Let's go straight to deep. <laughs> but unfortunately, you can't. So if you kind of parse out the learning trajectory, I tend to say we start with what's called kind of surface learning. And this is where you just pull in facts. And this entire level of learning is predicated on forming what we call semantic memories. And this is when you take in and memorize embody facts. And the scary thing is, is a lot of people, like you just said, they want to skip this stage. They want to jump right to the, well, forget facts. How am I conceptualizing? How am I using this information? But it's real easy to, to kind of, can I do a little example with you all? Oh, absolutely. Rock and roll. So it's, it's actually real easy to kind of demonstrate this. So I can imagine all of your listeners have a key skill called listening comprehension. If they've made it this far into the podcast, about three minutes in, chances are they've understood our words. They can listen. They can follow our arguments. Fine. So they have this skill. What I want them to do is I'm going to tell you a quick story. All I want you to do is use that skill on this story. So here we go. So this would have been about three weeks ago in the Journal of uh, uh brain and medicine, a new story or a new article was published that shows that neutrinos within the medial temporal lobe spinning in a clockwise fashion generate the radio signal required by MRI machines to register a signal. So what I want you to do is use your critical thinking skills and your in your listening comprehension skills on that now and tell me what probably methodologically went wrong with that study or if nothing was wrong with it what does that study suggest about how we analyze MRIs and have been doing this statistically for the last 30 years? So go ahead and use your skills on that information, and uh, I'll talk to you guys in a bit. Of course you can't do it. Why? 
because you have no idea what the heck I'm talking about. In this instance... Oh, thank goodness. Oh, good. Oh, no, I that I was, was failing a quiz. Bingo. You don't have <laughs> the facts. And here's where we start to learn that if you want to start going deeper with your learning, you need the facts. You can't skip that initial stage. Otherwise, all the skills in the world go nowhere. So stage one of all learning has to be intake, memorization, embodiment of facts. Love it or hate it, you can't make concepts, you can't go deep until you got those facts in you. And again, that was just one example, that story. I could be, I could do this with you all day. I could take every skill you think you have and I can shove it against the wall and show you that it's unusable until you have the facts. Yeah, it's, it, it sounds just like my first year of grad school when I would sit and listen to neuroscience talks and just, they might as well have been speaking gibberish. I always felt really good, like the number of slides in that I could actually understand <laughs> something. Like, oh, wow, I got through four slides that time before I got completely lost. I'm getting better. Um, I'm getting deeper at this. I love it. It's the same thing. It, it really is gibberish. It's as if you started to talk French. I, it, it's yeah. not that I'm an idiot. It's not that I don't have skills. It's that I don't no French so I can't use any of my skills so I got to start like a child back from the beginning and I think what's there's a lot of research now coming out too which shows okay well a lot of people now go well we have access to facts and that is very different when I know I can google facts what I'm memorizing and embodying is where to locate those facts unfortunately that's very different than knowing the facts themselves so same thing I can't really apply you could go now and look up MRI, neutrinos, spin in the medial temporal lobe, radio signals. You can look up the definitions, but you're going to be no closer to understanding that because you haven't taken the time to embody and personalize those facts. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's what I was thinking is even if I had my textbooks and Google, for that matter, sitting right in front of me listening to those talks, yeah. it would take me so much time to actually, you know, get the definitions for the words that I was hearing and then put it all together. It would take me probably four or five hours just to understand the remaining 10 slides <laughs> or whatever, right? Yeah. So this is what I love about the trajectory. So now you get to say, okay, well, so when do we get to start playing and going deeper and doing these fun things? And there's always a time for that. So as soon, once you've crossed that threshold of building your semantic facts, which typically could take less than a week. It's just, if you play the memory game right, and we won't go too deeply into it, you can build a whole set of facts within five days, totally fine. And then you get to start doing things like exploratory learning, um, um, project-based learning, inquiry learning. Once you have the solid foundation, then you get to play. The joke is when you try and jump, and so we'll start to call that maybe deep learning. If you try and jump to that deep before going through the surface, all you do is confuse people and lead to almost nothingness. We did this big study at uni, and it's, it's kind of scary when you think about it. But so we did it with the medical school, where we changed the entire medical school um, down at University of Melbourne to just be project-based learning from day one. So inquiry learning, come in, you're a med student, here's a cadaver, have some fun. And <laughs> man, luck. the results were horrible. These kids weren't learning anything. So then we flip-flopped and we realized, okay, if we do the first two years just hardcore fact learning and then move into project-based learning for the last two years, boom, the results went through the roof. Once they had the foundation, then they were able to think deeply and actually start to play. Now, this is really cool because it demonstrates that, yep, we've got this trajectory we go through. Well, you know what? Actually, that kind of gets into some of you know the next kind of question that um big question that I kind of wanted to tackle today which is this issue of uh, so much research is done 
um, in the lab, right? So you could try to study problem-based learning in the laboratory, but it doesn't really get to the heart of a lot of what happens in the classroom. Um, Yet a lot of our conclusions are based on laboratory research. And, uh, you know, even a lot of the stuff that you write about in the book is based on some laboratory research. So how can we put educators' minds at ease that this laboratory work is good in the classroom. I mean, I think you've hit upon a, a big reason why we don't always jump straight to the classroom, <laughs> which is that we, we, you know, we don't want those kinds of issues to happen, that we don't want to ever be hurting students. Yep, yep. Um, but uh, still, we make a lot of conclusions based on the lab. So what, what can you speak to that issue? Here's where I always like to really draw a very fine but distinct line between what I call the science of learning and the craft of teaching we can figure out how human beings learn and that seems to be pretty dang stable in fact i would argue for about 200 years now we've known generally how memory works how people learn there's not a lot new under the sun there but that's very different than the craft of teaching knowing how someone learns and knowing how to guide them through that process two very different things so when it comes to lab-based research that stuff is really good for the learning stuff, for saying, cool, here's how people think, here's how memory works, here's how attention works, here's how they learn. That, unfortunately, says absolutely nothing about a classroom. When I got 30 kids, how do I get them to use their attention in that way? How do I get them to form semantic memories? At that point, you've got to kind of cut the lab off and say, well, we don't know. And as you know, and as probably your listeners know, anyone who tries to conflate the two and say, because people learn like this in a lab, you should teach like this tomorrow, they are always wrong. I don't mean sometimes, I mean always wrong. And if they're not wrong today, trust me, in about two years, and and, and I'm not gonna name names, but if you go through just a laundry list of the people who have tried to link the classroom to the laboratory, they always fail because they mistake learning for teaching. And this is where I always say, as teachers, that's your expertise. I've never met, and I, and I honestly, I can't think of a profession in the world that's as maligned and kind of squashed down as teachers are. Everyone and their mother, I don't know if it's because they've been to school or what, thinks they can teach better than teachers. When in truth, no one devotes as much time, effort, energy, thought to the craft of teaching than teachers do, which by the very definition means they are the experts at teaching. So when you want effective translation from a lab to a classroom, the best a laboratory or a researcher can ever say is people learn like this, and now I have to hand it to you, the expert teacher, to decide what does that mean for you in your context, in your school. If you ever try and dictate what a teacher should do, you're going to be wrong all the time. Step into your expertise as a teacher, and you tell us what that means for you as teaching. And that's essentially how we'll step back up. I can say this because I'm was a teacher, am a teacher, will go back to being a teacher once all my research is said and done. Once we step back up into our expertise and start to say, cool, thanks for your information, I got this now, I'll translate it for myself, that's when we start to build our own database, that's when we start to step back up, and hopefully the world starts to take us seriously again. Yeah, this is an issue that we talk about all the time, that we have educators who say, okay, so exactly what do I need to do in my classroom and and want a, a prescription? And I get that. I mean, some of this stuff is pretty complicated, and it would be really nice to just give a prescription. But unfortunately, 
it all depends. It depends on the material. It depends on the learner. It depends on uh, the, you know, issues from up above, from administration. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you're working in the confines of your environment. Um, so I think it's a, I, I love that, the, the science of learning versus the craft of teaching. Um, we, we talk about how we wish that there was somebody out there. Maybe you are that person, Jared. No. Um, who, <laughs> who had, who had, you know, gone through um, the education to uh, have done the research and, and really understand and know the research of the science of learning. And then also gone through and gotten the degrees um, to to be in the classroom for 20 years so that we had somebody who could really bridge these things appropriately. Um, that's what I've, that I, person just doesn't exist in my world. <laughs> I, I love it. I think that's what I, I believe it or not. That was why I went back for this stuff. So like I said, I started as a teacher and I will go back to running my own classroom. That's the end goal. And the only reason I went back to get all these other degrees was because I was so sick of people talking about the brain, like saying, hey, brain based this. And me not being able to really suss any meaning from that. I'd be like, what, what are you right. actually talking about brain-based this? And no one had any answers. So my entire goal has always been to kind of sit at that crossroads to say, I know teachers. I now know neuroscientists. I now know psychologists. Here's how it all gloms together. And I had this wonderful dream that, cool, I could be that bridge, like you just said, that takes it all over and puts it here. But unfortunately, that dream has turned into the very strong realization that we're doing two very different things. The questions, the ideas being raised in the lab are very different than the questions, ideas, and meaning being generated in a classroom, which means maybe there is no bridge. And that's okay. There doesn't have to be, believe it or not, there's no bridge between, say, physics and neuroscience outside of, say, engineering, but it's okay. There are different levels of organization. No neuroscientist thinks they have to explain cognition by deferring to electrons and protons. Just like no psychologist thinks they have to defer to, to explaining memory by deferring to neutrinos. We're all doing our own thing, and it's okay. We can use each other's ideas as concepts, as new ways of thinking, but at the end of the day, we're experts in our field, and we get to determine what matters for us, what constitutes evidence for us as teachers, what's meaningful for us as teachers. We get to make that decision. No one in a lab should ever be making that decision for us. And that's actually quite, it was scary for about a year once I realized, uh-oh, my grand plan is going to fail. But it was wildly empowering once I pieced it all together and said, but that's okay. <laughs> that's mm -hmm. what teachers do that no lab person will ever do. And that's wonderful. So this is what I actually think that. That actually bleeds over into this idea of evidence. So the new thing is that what? That evidence-based practice, right? I'm the, the new sexy buzz term. It, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? And the big debates everyone are having is evidence-based or not evidence-based. And I always go, no, that's not the debate. The debate is the next time somebody says, is that an evidence-based practice? The only thing you should ask is, whose evidence do you mean? Evidence isn't a thing. It doesn't exist in one box and everyone gets to determine it. Science has evidence that works for them. Law has precedence. That's a whole different form of evidence that works for them. Anthropologists have evidence that works for them. As teachers, we get to decide and define what evidence works for us. So nine times out of 10, when people say, is it evidence-based, they mean, was it born in the lab? In which case you can doff your cap and say, doesn't matter, I don't care. Evidence I care about exists in a classroom. 
So the only evidence I need to be showing you is whether or not this works with me and my students for my goals. And if they want a t-test, tell them to go take a walk. You don't need to do t-tests as a teacher any more than a lawyer does. Any more than I need to prove precedence. It's nonsense. You get to define your own evidence because you are an expert in your craft of teaching. Yeah, I think um, we talk a lot about this lab to classroom model with the learning scientists. We, we start almost every talk by talking about this. This issue of um, if it works in the lab, that's just fine. Don't do it in the classroom. <laughs> then try it with some classroom-based materials. Make sure it still works with more complex materials. Does it work? Great. Still don't try it in the classroom. <laughs> now let's move up to using more complex um, participants over longer delays, trying to mimic the classroom as closely as possible. And only then can you maybe try it in the classroom, but you should still objectively try it in the classroom you know um so when we're talking about evidence-based practices we're really talking about getting to the point that you have done it in the classroom and have somehow objectively measured learning yeah that it's not it's not just as simple as um did the students like it because we have a wealth of evidence to show that uh, just because students like something doesn't mean they actually got anything out of it. Oh, my goodness. And Thank so, you for saying you know, that. Do you know how many people right, met? So there's this... Oh, they just missed that point. They go, well, they were engaged. I go, cool. I was engaged watching Thor last night. doesn't mean I remember anything about it. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah. So, yes, I absolutely think that, you know, educators need to consider their classrooms because they're going to have a different environment and different goals maybe than what we have as cognitive psychologists for sure but there is some value and utility in considering how to go about providing that evidence Ooh, right even if yeah. it's for themselves yeah and that's in it's it, sooner or later you start to learn once you go into kind of deep learning so surface learning is really easy to quantify and measure which is why that's essentially all we do so if you take say uh, Hattie's Visible Learning, or in the U.S. it's Marzano's, um, oh, I forget what the heck his product is called, but so that's all based on meta-analysis of research, which is all predicated on surface learning, memorization of facts. Why? Because that's really easy for us to measure in a lab as a learning outcome. Once you go deep, you start to realize maybe your learning outcome, though, isn't quantifiable. Once you go into conceptualization, my learning outcome could be can you debate? Can you change your mind? Have you convinced somebody else of your opinion? In these instances, you might need to actually talk to students. And there might not be a number. It might become qualitative right. all of a sudden where your report is, yeah. well, they said this, I thought this, I felt this. Now, in a lab, in a meta-analysis, that evidence doesn't count because you can't turn it into a number. You can't analyze it. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist in the classroom. And if you don't like it, just yeah. think, or if you don't believe that, just think back to PhDs. All PhDs conclude with a big two to six hour dissertation where you talk, argue, defend. That's not quantified, but that's higher education saying our final assessment for you is can you talk? Can you communicate with me? There's no number. There's no test. It's just I'm going to talk to you and see what you think and decide from that whether or not I believe you've earned this degree. It's, it's so if we do it all the time in education, just talk to students and that counts. That's fine if that matches our outcome. I'm now picturing the giant meta-analysis that will come from this where someone's trying to analyze how and when people pass their dissertation defense. <laughs> the, the big joke, as I love, is a lot of people try and quantify what should be qualitative data, 
but they don't realize yeah. that in so doing, what you're doing is you're turning that into surface knowledge. So you say, okay, I'm going to measure yep. the depth of your understanding by looking for these six words in your statement. Yeah, well, in that case, that's just surface knowledge. You've already told me, you've already decided in advance, you're looking for me to say six words, in which case, just teach that to me and tell me to do it. I can mimic your six words if that's exactly what you're looking for. Just teach that to me. If, right. Once you define exactly what you're looking for, you're back to surface knowledge and you might as well just teach it. Once you move into yeah. deep learning, there can be no a priori definition and that's why you just have to interact with people and who knows what's going to come out of that. So we've been talking a lot about, you know, translating from lab to classroom and a lot of that research. Um, and you're kind of saying, you know, hey, you know, you have to you know, you are the expert in your own classroom. And yet you wrote a book telling people what to do in their classrooms, Jared. So, uh, I never. Why I never? <laughs> well, tell me a little bit about that. Um, how are you inspired to write the book? What was your goal in writing the book? So exactly what you were just talking about earlier when you were alluding to kind of the stepwise translation of research. Do it in a lab. Do it with more material. Do it in a more... Uh, relevant context step your way up what this book is, is is I essentially over my last 15 years of trying to build a bridge between learning and teaching I've come across what I call essentially learning principles now these are hardcore nuggets of learning fact that have been demonstrated at the brain level at the psychology level and within the classroom using ed research so this kind of ticks all the boxes I would care about as a teacher in order to say well cool that's a learning principle. Now, there's a lot of learning principles that make sense in the brain that don't make it into the classroom. I never talk about those. There's a lot that exists in the classroom that I can't explain in the brain. I never talk about those. These, I wanted those 12 hardcore nuggets that anywhere I'm at, I can say this is at least a learning nugget. Now, how does that work in the classroom? I've offered, at the end of each chapter, I've offered suggestions, but I try and make it very clear, especially in the introduction, that cool you're gonna to need to adapt these for your own purposes. If this is how people learn, I can suggest these things, but there's caveats to everything. Like for instance, there's one rule where human beings can't listen to somebody speak while reading at the same time. It's just neurologically impossible. When you try it psychologically, you fail. When you try it in the classroom, no one learns anything. So from this, I can suggest, if you've got a PowerPoint slide with a bunch of words while you're trying to teach over that, your students can't do it. They're going to try and jump back and forth between reading, listening, lose information from both. It's not going to work. So I can suggest don't put a ton of words on your PowerPoint slides. But you can come back to me and say, yeah, but what if my kids are just learning a new language? In which case, put words on your slides. What if my kid is just learning how to read? In that case, put words on your slides. What if I want to confuse my kids? In that case, put <laughs> words on your slides. You, I don't know your goals. So that's where you get to step up as a teacher in the end and say, thanks for the suggestion. I got it from here. So ideally, this book just offers enough background and suggestions so you can start to own those learning rules in your own context, adapt them for your own purposes. Yeah, that's part of what I love about the book, actually, is, is sort of the layout that um, instead of it, it being um, text only, there's lots of visuals, lots of little thought experiments throughout. Um, it's almost like you know something about writing a good textbook or something. Wow, um, what? <laughs> I always say, we, when we teach at uni here, so I work in the ed school here, um, and it's hilarious because you'll get some of the best theoreticians talking about teaching, 
while standing lecturing in front of a PowerPoint slide. It's like they can talk <laughs> about exactly it right. without ever doing it. So I'm very much a, a, yeah. a, 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 the guy that if I can't get my – when I'm teaching, if I can't get my students to experience a concept, then I'm not ready to teach it because I don't get it myself. And I just translated yeah. that into the book. If I can't get my reader to experience, to feel exactly what I'm talking about, then I wasn't ready to write about it, and I just omitted it. So, yeah, I tried to make it as interactive, as fun as possible, so you don't leave going, is that right? You leave going, well, dang, that must be right, because I just lived it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, yeah, you talked about the end of each chapter having sort of the implications. Um, and then I really like the little at-a-glance thing that you have. You sort of summarize <laughs> it all for me. So I don't I, – I just – there's very little work that goes into – reading the chapters which is amazing right because a lot of times when you're reading about science it's it, it you know you have to go back and reread things and stuff but no it's laid out so nicely I don't have to put a whole lot of effort in in order to learn a whole lot which is amazing <laughs> and if you think about the learning trajectory which we don't go deeply into in the book unfortunately but if surface learning is all about just forming semantic memories then reading through a chapter once and then having the at a glance two or three times, that should be enough to form the memories you need to actually start using that information. So I kind of, yeah. Yeah, you're right, I kind of embedded uh, some some learning ideas in there. Tried to anyway. Yeah, it's great. Um, I, I if if I could, I would you know recommend this as a teacher training textbook for for lots of teacher training <laughs> programs. Um, I, I really would. It's it's really fantastic. So thank you. So I, much. I'll That's, be talking it up anyway. We're trying to I'm trying to get it out. It's one of those you're right. It, it, believe it or not, I wrote it for it was originally called Stop Talking, Start Teaching. So it was it's written completely for teachers. But it's one of those things once it gets into the hands of a publisher and they say, Well let's let's expand it to try and so then it becomes, you know, stop talking, start influencing which is supposed to appeal to a broader audience. But at the end of the day, it was really written for teachers by a teacher. So hopefully more teachers use it. Yeah. Um, well, and I, I mean, I think that it is true that more than just teachers can use these concepts for sure. Uh, your implications are for leaders and, and teachers and coaches. And I think that that makes good sense. And a lot of people can use this information. So I think that's that's awesome. Yay. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to wrap things up today. Is there anything else you wanted to tell us about today, Jared? Oh, I just w want to thank you for doing what you guys do. I think the learning sciences is beyond fun, and you don't try and control teaching while doing it. So many people, once they get into the learning sciences, they say, now do this. But you guys are doing it so well by just saying, cool, here's the learning sciences. Now what? It's not a yeah. direct walk into your classroom. And I just, I love that. I think that's fantastic work. Uh, well, thank you. We appreciate that more than you know. Um, so once again, um, this is Dr. Cindy Nebel. I've been talking with Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath, who's the author of the new book, Stop Talking, Start Influencing, 12 Insights from Brain Science to Make Your Message Stick. This episode is funded by listeners like you. To support our work and gain access to exclusive content, visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learningscientists.